Today's Bible reading is from Colossians chapter 1. This can be found on page uh, 1182 of the Church Bibles. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of all the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who, also, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We, const we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Where's the kid? Do you have the... My apologies. I'm just looking for the clicker. Well, I've seen it. Previous service, you know. You never trust them. <laughs> morning, everyone. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister here. It's good to be at church with you this morning. Uh, and it's nice to be back. I was away on leave last week. Um, we had a, we enjoyed church. We went to, um, we were up at Newcastle. We went to, enjoyed the hospitality of Hunter Bible Church, which is the, the home church of Sam Carlos, one of our student ministers. They were very kind. They told me a few mean things about Sam, which I'll tell you later. Uh, but if you're ever in Newcastle, go and visit them. Great church. So very thankful for them. But nice to be back as we kind of think about Term 4, those of us who are in term land. But for the rest of us, as we just kind of start to think about Christmas and uh, the end of the year, we're, we're going to spend the next... Uh, eight weeks, including today, looking at the New Testament letter to the church in uh, Colossae, uh, called Colossians, and uh, it, I, it's, a great, it's a great letter. It'll be a wonderful opportunity to reflect on God's Word together over the coming weeks, and um, the handout has the gap group studies, which are uh, concurrent with this series, and also the outline for this morning's sermon, if you want it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll... we'll We'll jump into things. Kind Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and minds this morning, make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
Well, here's a question I have for you. What is, what is the language that's distinct to you? What do I mean? Uh, I mean like this. You know, have you ever noticed this? When they interview a sportswoman or sportsman, they have language that's distinct to them. Like sports people just talk a certain way. For example, the next time you listen to an interview, count how many times they say the word obviously. Obviously, we had a great game today, and, and obviously we'll be, we'll be aiming to replicate that next week. Obviously, we really tanked, so obviously we'll have to go back to the drawing board this week. Obviously, obviously. You, you will be, you'll be startled by how often Australian sports women and men use that word. Uh, what's, what's the word that may be distinct for you? What's a, more importantly, what's the language that's distinct? What's the way of speaking that's distinct for God's people, for Christians? How would you say, what would you say makes Christian speech distinctive? Now, there's words like fellowship or etc., but those are in many ways culturally determinate, right? They, they, if you speak English, you might use a word like that. If you're from a certain time period, you'll use certain words. Uh, if you use a, read a certain translation of the Bible, you'll use certain words. But what is the overall, universally speaking, what would you say is the distinctive of Christian speech? I ask this because we're about to open up a letter. Uh, As much as we read these portions of the Bible as part of one big book, it's not actually just on one book. It's It's a historical letter which Paul wrote to some Christians in, uh, in a, a little town called Colossae back about 60 AD. And so he's using language and modelling for us what is distinctive about Christian speech. What's distinctive? And you know what strikes me? From the very outset of this letter, actually, it's something that we normally breeze over, but is that Paul starts his letter... I mean, he has a couple of verses, which is, which is a classic introduction. But the substance of his letter begins with a prayer to God. The first person he addresses in the letter is not the Colossians, but is God. I mean, it's, it's a slightly different prayer to what you and I would normally pray, like, dear Heavenly Father, you know, uh, please do this or that. He's, he's talking about the content of a prayer, but it's effectively still a prayer. Paul's first words in his, in his address to the Colossians are not to the Colossians, but to God. He's praying. And this is common, actually, in Paul's letters. All of his letters, except for Galatians and 1 Timothy, start with a prayer. This is, this, I mean, we're so used to it, we don't really think about this, but this is extraordinary, isn't it? He doesn't, he doesn't address them, he addresses God. About them, but he addresses God. And this is actually a constant theme of the Scriptures, actually. At moments where God's people turn back to him, or there is a moment of renewal, it begins with prayer. You may have seen this graphic before. I've used this graphic because I've, I have a, a conviction and a sense that the Bible is actually a big, one big story. It's unfolding a story of God's work in the world. And when we think about prayer, we see prayer you know, unfolded through the course of this story. And again, you see this theme. So in Genesis chapter 4, which is the chapter after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, it's after Cain and Abel, it's basically after the world has, has hit its low point in the story, God's people turn back to him. And the way they turn back 
is through a prayer. We're told that they called on the name of the Lord. At the first moment of turning back, it starts with an address to God, even before it's an address to each other. It's an address to God. In 2 Chronicles 7, this is another example. I'm just picking a few examples here. In, in the Old Testament, God says to Solomon, when your people make a mistake in future, if they turn back to me in prayer, I will hear them. He's saying the moment of renewal starts with prayer. In Jesus' own life, we see the priority of prayer. He starts his ministry. In Mark 1, we're told by going off to quiet places to pray. This is the hallmark of Jesus' teaching and his ministry. His teaching, he tells a parable in Luke 18 about the persistent widow, and he says, that's what you're meant to be like. The hallmark of your life as a Christian, the hallmark of your speech is prayer. We'll talk about the cross and the resurrection later, but I mean, even on the cross, what's Jesus doing? Most of his words on the cross are actually addressed to God, not to the people. The apostles' example, as we see in Colossians. And in Revelation, the final picture is not God's people necessarily talking to each other as much as it is hearing from him and talking to him, offering praise to God. This is because the fundamental picture of God's people is a praying people. God's people are praying people. You think about what is the distinctive of Christian speech? It's that it is speech to God. It's God's people talking to him. That's what's distinctive. And this is one of the reasons, actually, we we re-described our our, um, Bible study groups. They used to be connect groups. We call them gospel and prayer groups because even before there are opportunities for us to connect with each other, they are opportunities for us to hear from and talk to God. Right? That, is where our, that is where it all starts. And, and so if you're not in one, they're great. They're wonderful spaces to be in. I really want to encourage you. There's a box on the Connect card uh, this morning. You can use that ticket. I'll talk to you about the right group for you to join. But those groups, actually, and if you're in a group, here's my encouragement to you. Those groups should be littered with prayer. They should be shaped around prayer. That is why you're, that is, that is the hallmark of your speech, even before it's to each other. I mean, I've been in Bible studies where we've spent many time, many, many minutes, hours of the group sharing with each other, and then we tack on prayer at the end. But I want to say that the hallmark of our time together, the hallmark of our speech is prayer. On Sunday, when we meet together, we spend very little time praying. Have you noticed that? I think that's something we can rectify. We have someone who comes up here and has kindly prepared and leads us in prayer. But you know what I'd love to see? After the service, you know, we, people are sharing things that are important. That is great. But why don't we also pray about those things together? That is a distinctive of Christian speech. It'd be great if that really marks our life together. And you know what's really interesting about the example we find here in Colossians is that Paul doesn't actually know them. He has never met them personally. I mean, he knows of them through Epaphras, but he has never met them. This is one of the churches which he didn't go and start. He, didn't, he wasn't the person who converted the first members of this church. He, he has no physical connection with them, and yet he prays for them. I think sometimes we think, oh, I could only pray for someone if I know them. It's only in the intimacy 
of a Bible study group where I've got to know them for a long time that I can pray for them. But Paul is not inhibited by that understanding of prayer. He prays for them. He prays for them. And so you can too. So we can too. The question, of course, then is, what does he actually pray? I mean, lots of people pray, but what is it that makes prayer, Christian prayer, distinctively Christian, as opposed to just another season of um, spirituality in your life? And Paul gives us, I think, a very, a very good and challenging example of what Christian, distinctive Christian prayer is. I've got three words starting with G, or three phrases starting with G, to help us to kind of remember this. The first one is that his prayer is gracious. It's really grace-filled, actually. And it's not just because he starts in verse 2 by saying, grace and peace to you. It's the very tenor of what he's saying and how he addresses them. So in verse 2, he says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters. This is, this is, pretty, this is pretty amazing as we just delve into and think about the very components of what he's saying here. First of all, he, he is the apostle of, to the Gentiles, right? Appointed by God, met Jesus Christ. That's, that's a very unique group of people. He, he is highly respected in many churches in the area. And yet he addresses them as brothers and sisters, faithful brothers and sisters. What's even more interesting is Colossae is a small town, it's a dwindling town, actually. It's not a town on the rise. In fact, in coming years, it'll be struck by an earthquake and basically wiped off the face of the earth. This is a small church in a dwindling town who he's never met before. But he writes to them as brothers and sisters. Look at how he talks about Epaphras in verse 7. You learnt it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Now, Epaphras is not an apostle. Epaphras, we think, is probably someone Paul met when he was in Ephesus. Someone maybe converted by him, or at least part of the congregation that formed in Ephesus, and then took the gospel to Colossae, which is a relatively speaking nearby town. Epaphras is like you and me. Paul says he's a fellow servant. Not my servant, not my appointed means. He's a fellow servant. There's a mutuality there with which he treats Epaphras. He holds him in high regard. And I think this graciousness is really worth reflecting on. Some people write off what Paul has to say in the New Testament. Uh, there is a whole school of thinking now which says Paul's letters are not worthy reflecting on um, because Paul is himself a bit of a narcissist. Like people have time for Jesus. He's a nice guy. He's gentle. But Paul, and this is partly because some of the things Paul writes are very challenging in the New Testament, we, we would prefer to class him as a bit of a narcissist, a bit selfish, a, a bit of a power-hungry person who likes to put people in their place, a bit dominating. And yet, look at the way that Paul writes and the way he addresses people. It goes in stark contrast to that, that view of Paul. Paul is a very gracious person. He is always quick to talk about his own failings, his own limitations, his own need for grace, and so he treats others with graciousness. So our prayers are meant to be gracious prayers. We are meant to think of people in gracious ways. We're meant to want the best for them, start with assuming the best of them, and pray for the best of them. 
There's a graciousness, not an not a, not a, um, antagonism towards people immediately in our prayer life. The second word is gratitude. See what Paul says in verse 3. This is he's describing his, his prayers for them. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Always. When he prays, he always starts with thanks for the Colossians. Now, he doesn't know them. I mean, he knows something of them through a paraphrase, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a litany of things to, uh, to, to give thanks for each week. You know, he doesn't say, dear God, thank you for the, for the roof that you've put over their heads, for the church building that they have. But even though he doesn't know the details of their life, he gives thanks for them. The hallmark, actually, actually, as you see, each of these Gs, they're kind of they're sharpening the distinctiveness of Christian prayer and Christian speech. Gracious, grateful. Right? Christian prayer is primarily an expression of gratitude, of thanksgiving. And it should always mark our prayers, actually. Always mark our prayers. You know, in our family, we say grace before we eat food. This is not an unusual thing. I think most people probably do that in this congregation. But, you know, before I became a Christian, I only became a Christian in, in university. I grew up in a family where one of my um, parents was a Christian, but the other wasn't. So we never said grace over the table uh, for a meal. So after I became a Christian and I went to people's houses, who my, my, you know, friends from church, and I went to their house for dinner, they would say grace. This is a very strange thing. It really struck me as a very unique thing. Now, most of us don't think twice about it. It's maybe just become a ritual that we even do. We're not even really thinking in a grateful manner. We're just doing it because that's just what we do over a meal. But it is a beautifully, wonderfully countercultural moment, actually. And, and sometimes we experience this because we'll maybe go to a restaurant or a cafe, right, and they bring out the food and we start to say grace, but there's one more plate and the, the wait, waiter or the waitress comes and plonks it in front of you in the middle of the prayer, <laughs> You know, and you just have that sense, this is not what most people do. Most people, when they go to a restaurant and the dumplings come out, don't say thank you to God for the dumplings. They just say, where's the vinegar? Where's the soy sauce? Where's the chili sauce? They, this is not their first inclination. But what makes Christian speech, what makes Christian prayer distinctive is that it has a it has this hallmark of gratitude to it. And I want to encourage you, bring that into your prayer life. Bring thanksgiving into your prayer life. It's actually really hard. I've noticed this because sometimes um, we, we have prayer nights, and if you've ever been to one of our all-in prayer nights, we often set aside a time for thanksgiving. And, and when people are leading us in thanksgiving, it is interesting how easily we start in thanksgiving but by the end of it, we're asking for something. Yeah. I don't know if you have this. I, I'm giving thanks for something. Before I realise it, I, I, I realise I'm actually asking for something. I, I've moved on from giving thanks very quickly. Don't feel bad if you do that. <laughs> At least you started with thanks, right? But my, my challenge is, let us just bathe our prayers in gratitude. Because that is actually the hallmark. That's a distinctive of Christian prayer. You might know people who pray every now and then. They pray when they need something. They pray when their life is falling apart. 
But the distinctive of Christian prayer is we always thank God when we pray for you. We always thank God. Third G, God's will. You see this? This is now where it's really sharp. This is where it's pretty hard to be um, a non-Christian person and pray these kind of prayers, okay? See what Paul says? Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. Fill you not with material prosperity, with happiness, with children, with a spouse, to fill you with the knowledge of his will. He prays that they would know God's will. And this is not some kind of generic knowledge of it. This is not, I went off, I I reflected for a while, and I think this is what God wants me to do. It is a knowledge of his will that comes through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. It is this particular knowledge of his will. And if you think about what Paul is saying in the context of his other letters, I think he's talking about the Scriptures there when he says this wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. In Ephesians 6, he calls the Bible or the Word of God the the sword of the Spirit. I think this wisdom and understanding comes primarily through the Scriptures. And so he's saying, I want you to know the knowledge of... You have knowledge of the will of God that comes from being immersed in God's Word, immersed in it. And this knowledge of God's will is crucial for Paul because I don't have this, these verses printed out. You can pull them out in your Bible as you... 1182, I think, was the passage, uh, the page reference for the passage. You can pull it out if you want to and have a look. See what he says, right? So in verse 9, he says, I'm praying for the knowledge of uh, God's will. Verse 10, so that what would happen? You would live a life that's worthy and pleasing to God. And what is that life that's worthy and pleasing to God? It's one that bears fruit. It's one that sees you growing in knowledge. It's one that sees you strengthened so that you would endure. It's one that makes you joyful. But all of those things, as great as they are, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge, strengthened, joyful, those are the things we really want. They come from, what's the source of it all? A knowledge of God's will, says Paul. It is from knowing God's will. That's the source of it, right? He, he wants them to be joyful, but he doesn't just pray, dear God, make them joyfully thank, thankful in their life. He says, I want them to know your will, because that is actually the source of finding that deep joy. I want them to endure, Lord. But he prays they would know your will, because that is the source, actually, of enduring and persevering in the Christian life. And so he prays for the knowledge of God's will. This is, I think, the sharpest aspect of the prayer, that the, the speech, the distinctive of Christian speech that Paul is exhibiting here in Colossians 1. This is what it is genuinely like to be Christian. Don Carson, the, uh, the um, Canadian theologian, writes this in his great book on Paul's prayers. He says, people cannot live by bread and jacuzzis alone. <laughs> Does anyone have a jacuzzi anymore? I think they've gone out of fashion, haven't they? We desperately need meditative and reflective dependence on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what we need. And the distinctive of Christian prayer is not, dear God, please give me the job I want, 
Or dear God, please provide the nanny that I want. Or dear God, please send my, give my kids the right mark in their HSC. Or, or dear God, give me a spouse. It is Heavenly Father, help me to know your will and do it. Help me to know your will and do it. You know, this week, we've had the palaver over the Essendon Football Club, and uh, Andrew Thorburn, if he was in our congregation and I was his pastor, I mean, he's got a good pastor from what I've heard. My friends are on that staff team and they, they say, Guy Mason's a good guy. If he was in here and he said to me, what do I pray? I would not say, pray that you'd get your job back or pray that you'd be vindicated or pray that there would be religious freedom. I'd say, Pray that God would show you his will and that you would have the courage to do it. That is what a distinctively Christian prayer is. Now, think about our prayer lives. Do they reflect this? Now, of course, it's fine to pray for the jacuzzi, okay? But, but it's the weight of your prayers. What is the weight of our prayer life? You see, it's interesting. Paul does not pray for the material things of the Colossians. You notice that? He doesn't pray they'll have a church building to meet in. He doesn't, he doesn't pray even that they would have a minister to lead them, although he might pray that in other times. It's not that those things are unimportant. The starting point, the foundation and the weight of our prayers rests on praying that we would know God's will, because that's the source of all God's blessings. That's a very hard thing to pray. When you're in a hard stretch, when you meet someone after church and they disclose to you something terrible that's happening in their life, now you say, let's pray that God's will would happen in this life. That's a difficult prayer to pray in that moment, isn't it? But that's what Paul's praying. And so the question is, why does he pray that? Why is that so important? How can he pray that? How can he genuinely, sincerely think that that has got to be at the heart of a prayer life? I think the answer is, it's all about where Paul lives. It's all about where Paul is dwelling. That's why it shapes his prayer life. That's what gives the distinctiveness to his Christian, his Christian speech. What do I mean? I don't mean Rome. He's probably in Rome. He's probably in prison or in house arrest. But that is not what I mean by where he lives. Look at where he lives. This is verse 13 and 14. For, says Paul, and for is always a crucial word when you're reading his letters, because it probably means he's going to explain something. I've, in other words, I've prayed all this for you because of this reason. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom there is, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is a clear relocation that has taken place in Paul's life. And that is what drives his prayer life, he says. The reason I pray like this, the reason that the will of God is the priority in my life, not other things, is because I have been relocated from the dominion of darkness. He uses that word very deliberately, I think. He describes the world, he describes his former self and his former state as a place of darkness. And he uses darkness because darkness is where evil is. Darkness is where you go to try and hide from your mistakes and your guilt. Darkness is what you do in shame. 
Darkness is where death is. Darkness is what happens when you close the lid on the coffin. That's where he was. But he says, I've been taken from that. You, Colossians, have been taken from that. And you have been moved into the kingdom of light, he'll say in verse 12, the verse just before this, or the kingdom of the sun. The kingdom where there is, no, there is no more ignorance. Things are clear now because they're in the light. The kingdom where there is no more guilt and because things have been brought out and there's no more guilt because in this kingdom there is redemption. In this kingdom there is forgiveness. In this kingdom you're not under the lid of the coffin anymore. It has been pried open. You're warmed by the sun. You're able to breathe again. Paul says, that's the relocation that's taken place. And how has it happened? Of course, through the Lord Jesus. The light of the world who came into the darkness. It is not by accident that when Jesus came into the world, all he encounters is darkness. It is not by accident that it is in the darkness of Gethsemane that the mob comes for him. It is not by accident that in the middle of the night they hold a trial against him where he is unjustly convicted. And it is not by darkness, it is not by accident that it is darkness that descends on the world when he dies on the cross, the eyewitnesses say. An unnatural darkness because at that moment the light of the world goes into the heart of darkness, the scriptures tell us. Why? To rescue us. To rescue us, says God. And see, Paul says, because Christ has done that, wrenched him from the heart of darkness and brought him into this kingdom where there is no guilt, where there is no judgment, where there is complete forgiveness, that is where he dwells. And where he lives shapes how he speaks. Where he lives shapes how he speaks. I don't know if you know someone who's gone to like, gone overseas for you know, a couple of years to work or a gap or something like that, and they come back and they've got the accent of the place they went to. Some of us, like our treasurer, have managed to avoid ever changing their accent. But most of us, when we dwell in a place for long enough, we pick up the language of that place, right? The the accent, the shape of that place. And Paul's reoccurring message in Colossians is going to be, You need to dwell in this kingdom. This kingdom that you've been rescued into, you've been relocated into. And to the extent that you dwell in that, it will shape shape your language. It will shape the way you speak. See, Paul lives in God's kingdom, and so he prays for God's will. He shapes in a kingdom of grace, and so he prays graciously. He lives in a kingdom of forgiveness and redemption. And so he speaks gratefully. You know, to the extent that you dwell in that kingdom, your speech, you can put on these words, don't get me wrong, you can put them on, but sincerely, deep down in your heart, you won't feel deep gratitude. You won't be truly gracious towards people. And you won't truly want God's will in your life, lest Jesus Christ has relocated you into the kingdom of the Son whom God loves. If that's you, if you need that relocation, 
Now's the time to do it. Jesus is offering it. And if you've accepted that, dwell in that, my friends. Dwell in where you belong. And it will shape the way you speak. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We praise you for him who went into the heart of darkness to rescue us. We give you great praise and thanksgiving, Lord Jesus, for being torn apart at the hands of evil, that we might be put together. We thank you, Lord God, for your kindness in rescuing us. Would you reshape us so that we would speak, live, and think in accordance with your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.